We are continuing our series in studying about God the Son. Um, and we have talked so far about uh, what it means that Jesus was fully man. Last week we talked about what it meant that uh, Jesus was fully God. And that's a hard concept to get because we often, in our mind to make peace with that idea, we kind of slip into an un, unspoken heresy, right? We say, well, um, we understand parts, right? We understand part God, part man. We understand uh, mostly and some, but to understand fully is difficult. Uh, the way I explained it to my students it's like having a glass of water all the way filled to the top, and then you fill it again with orange juice all the way to the top. Well, how do you do that? Yeah, uh, you can. So how does it work? Well, you have two natures that are not separated, but are distinct. And they are full natures, right? They're not half natures. They're not two people. Um, you get to the point when we're talking about something as complex as God that you just have to describe it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, you're not, at, at some point, you're not really trying to put it into human knowledge. You're just trying to put it into human words. And that's the best you can do because God is not a superman. Right? If God were a superman, we'd be able to understand him because he'd basically be us with superpowers. But instead, he's an almighty God who is uh, as complex and as deep uh, as a God can be. Does that make sense? He created kryptonite. What was that? He created kryptonite. <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Gus, for bringing that to us. All right, good. So we talked about those things and the complexities of that stuff. Today we're going to talk about what is significant about the idea that Christ was the exact image of the Father. Uh, what we're going to have to deal with is this is a type of image that is not like how we image God. We are image bearers. Have you heard that term before? That we bear the image of God. It's what brings value to a human being. Um, when we talk about humans being intrinsically valuable, do you know? You understand what I mean by intrinsic? So you have, a, if you have a $10 bill, a $10 bill is valuable because it represents something. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> it's supposed to represent uh, $10 worth of gold, right? There's supposed to be gold that backs it up because gold is something that has intrinsic value. It has value within itself. Does that make sense? So a dollar bill doesn't have value in itself. It's ink. It's a piece of paper. But it represents something that's valuable. Um, gold is intrinsically valuable. Humans are intrinsically valuable because we bear God's image. There's something valuable about you because you bear God's image. But you don't bear God's image 
in a way that you are basically God, or that you are God on earth. Um, it is a, uh, what we could call, um, I want to try and use words that aren't so, a lot of times seminaries use words that are very technical, because it helps them, but it really doesn't uh, answer a question. Does that make sense? It gives them a word they can use so they don't have to answer questions. But, um, but what we are is we are a genuine, we're a genuine uh, image of God, but we are not an exact, right? We are not God come to earth. We are just, uh, we have things that are like God, likenesses, things like that. Okay. I say all that because we need to keep that very distinct from what we're going to talk about today with Christ. Christ is not an image bearer. Okay? There's something more going on there. So if you will turn with me to Hebrews 1. <coughs> Hebrews 1. I'm look at, start with, uh, with verse 1. What was going on... Uh, why was uh, the book of Hebrews written? What was happening in the church? What were they beginning to believe? There was a heresy going on. Remember we talked about the, Coloss the Colossian heresy? Uh, was that last week? <laughs> Zeke? <laughs> I expect you to remember these things. Alright, well, when was it? Okay, thank you. So the Colossians were having a hard time because they were start they were believing that Jesus was created. Okay, and now we have um, we have Hebrews written because the church was starting to believe what about Christ that he wasn't quite as high as the. Okay. Angels, yeah. That the angels were really, they were incredible, and Jesus was lower than the angels. Um, what you will find throughout church history, and I think I'm accurate at this. If I'm not, uh, just keep it to yourself. But uh, I think I can say this <laughs> with some degree of, uh, of confidence, that... Almost all the heresies, almost all the heresies have something to do with a, um, a denial of who Jesus Christ is. Um, they don't want Christ to be fully God, so they say he's created. They don't want Christ to be fully man, so they say, well, he never really took on flesh. They don't want the complexity of a triune God, so they say, well, God just puts on three different hats. He has his father hat, his son hat, and his Holy Spirit hat, and he just, you know, he just has different modes that he kind of drifts into. And it always comes down to this idea of um, the world cannot tolerate Christ. Um, there was a for a while, and I don't know if it's still popular, 
Um, it might have died down, but for a while, um, there was a heresy going around where Christians were saying that Allah in the, uh, in the Muslim tradition is the same God as God the Father. It's just the poor Muslims don't know that the Father had a son. So this is our way into the Muslim world. We will tell them, look, we're worshiping the same God. You just need to understand that this God has a son. I don't know if they're just going to wait later to break the news about the Spirit. But uh, they seem to... This, this idea seemed to come across, and it really caught on. There was a lot of people, even in conservative churches, that were starting to jump on this idea that you can reject Christ and still worship the same God. That was controversial in the PCA. Was it? General Assembly two or three years ago. Really? There was a study committee formed, and it was debated, and it... Uh, it was, you know, close votes and, and everything. Yeah. That is insane. They had to form a study committee to figure out if you can reject Christ and still worship God at the same time. It's called like the Insider Movement or something like that. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know it. Well, it doesn't surprise me it got into the PCA. But... Wow. Okay. Um, so... Um, when I was when I was in seminary, we had a our uh, professor did not believe this uh, this idea, but he wanted us to know what it was like to interact with a true believer of this idea. And he brought in a guy that was that really believed that this is possible. And uh, so when they opened up the questions, of course, we're asking him how is it possible to reject Christ, but still worship. I guess the Father, without knowing it's the Father. Um, and it is an interesting... It what was that? When you put it that way. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting when people... Um, you know, if you're a true Christian, there's, there's something in you that... Uh, it's like swallowing a, uh, a jagged pill. I mean, it's cutting your throat all the way down. Uh, there's some kind of sin that makes you need that thing to be true, right? There's, it seems like whenever there's a study committee in the PCA, there's, some, <laughs> there's something obvious they want, something obviously bad that they need to be true for something. And you have to ask yourself why they need it to be true. Because when you ask them direct questions, it is fascinating how quickly the question turns in. They answer something else. Um, they don't answer your question. They start answering another question that no one asked. And they start talking. I mean, it's like politics, right? You ask a politician a direct question about some horrible thing they did, and they use this opportunity to talk about something completely different, and they act like they just answered your question. Right? Um, so I say all that because this is another, Hebrews is another uh, example of that where the church was... Um, was once again struggling over what they will do with God the Son. And I think that is the litmus test, right, of Christianity. 
Sometimes I think people forget that's what it's called. Um, so um, let me start reading with that giant long introduction. Let me start reading and see if we can get through all these little things. Um, so what we have at the beginning of this chapter, since we're not going to go too far into this chapter, um, what we have is the author, um, whoever it is, whether it's Paul or uh, Paul's uh, mentor or whoever it is, I want to fight that battle today. <laughs> but the author is, say, is starting to give you um, a contrast here. I want you to notice what the contrast is. Let's start with verse 1. God, after he, he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these, day, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So the author is starting right at the problem. okay, And he is addressing this contrast. What's the contrast? What's he contrasting? The son. Okay. The son to, to prophets. Okay, good. Yeah, so he's, he's talking about two different um, administrations of the covenant, right? The first administration, a uh, long time ago, God, after, uh, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So, so he starts off with, this is the first administration, okay? If I can put it this way, the old covenant. Um, sometimes most translators call it the Old Testament or New Testament, but I think probably a better way of saying it would be the Old Covenant. Um, long ago, uh, God revealed himself, uh, oops, it was supposed to be by way of, and somehow that happened, it turned into why. Sorry about that. You can uh, fix that with your pens and pencils. All right. So what does it mean when it says in many portions and in many ways? What's that talking about? Natural revelation, biblical revelation. Okay. God's word, what is revealed by nature and what, what he reveals by his word. Okay, good, good, yeah, so you have different ways that he, that he revealed himself through nature um, and things like that, through the prophets, um, and in portions, you're, um, I think the idea here is uh, at different times, okay, so at different times, he used different ways 
of doing this. Um, so in all those little blanks you got there, uh, there's different ways that he did this in the Old Testament. Um, prophets, by way of prophets, by way of visions, by way of dreams, by way of angels, by way of his voice coming down from above or through the fire with the Israelites, and nature. Right? Nature declares God's glory as well. So he revealed himself that way throughout the Old Covenant. And then he contrasts this with now. Um, in these last days, okay, God has spoken, and if you look in the, <coughs> in the Greek, it's very interesting, it just says, has spoken in Son. He has spoken in Son. And what he's trying to declare here is that God has revealed himself in a perfect way in the old days, in, and it was a perfect, uh, inerrant, infallible way, but he did it through different means. This Nowadays, he's doing it through his son. This is a superior uh, idea. Now, superior does not mean one was less uh, errant or less inerrant, if I can put it that way, of a double negative there, I guess. Um, that there was, you know, we're kind of iffy about the Old Testament. We're not sure about, you know, all the facts and all that. It's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is you are given a better honor now, right? The means that God has used before has been created means. Now he's using the means of his son. And to reiterate who this son is, it goes on to say that he is the heir of all things. He inherits all things. Now this inheritance is something that would um, identify himself as son. The son is the one who inherits from the father. This is part of the activity that goes on within the Trinity. Always remembering that the father and the son are not both gods, as we talked about last time, but are both God. Their deity is found in their oneness. Okay? Now, that's a really hard thing to understand. But if you want to understand the persons, the persons are in constant activity between each other. There's relation there that makes them distinct from each other as persons. The Father is the one that gives the inheritance to the Son. And this is what this means. This means the Son is the absolute director, governor, and sustainer of all persons and of all things, of all creation. So the Father is not... Um, okay, let me put it this way. Uh, my best friend... Did I ever tell you about my best friend uh, growing up in... Was, I, I don't know, do we still say best friends when you get old? <laughs> 
I guess I had two best friends. I had Emmanuel, he was my uh, best friend since third grade, but then I, uh, then Brett came along. And Brett, uh, he was a guy that became a pastor, and I think I told this story when, during uh, Spanish class when he fell through the ceiling. No, I didn't tell that? Okay, well, maybe that's someone else. I get old, I tell stories. Uh, so anyway, he's, uh, he got bored during Spanish class and climbed up. They were, like, they were like ceiling tiles like this. And he climbed up in the ceiling and shut the tile, and Senora Latham began teaching, and we all were snickering. He says, what are you laughing at? And we all looked up the ceiling, and just at that moment, it was like he timed it. He literally fell through. I mean, it was like an action movie. It was the greatest thing that ever happened in high school. And he fell through and landed right on his back on top of his own desk. <laughs> and it got all quiet as the dust literally settled. And he looked up from his desk at Senora Latham and said, Permite el baño, por favor? was <laughs> the only phrase we knew because he got us out of class. <laughs> Anyway, is this a Christian school or a Oh, yes, of course. That's what makes it even better. <laughs> yes, uh, so he grew up to be a pastor uh, and stayed in town, of course. And uh, he's, his dad was, had a very strong personality, so his dad created this, uh, um, this very, how do I put it? It's a rigid, it was a rigid church. It was rigid. Um, uh, as part of the temple movement, all their churches had the word temple in it, so there's Toledo Temple Church. Uh, anyway, uh, his dad had a very strong personality. And so Brett tried to make it on his own, uh, trying to plant his own churches, and it just didn't go well. And so he ended up inheriting his dad's church. And uh, <clears throat> he didn't really inherit it, uh, you know what I mean? So... His dad steps down slowly, so it goes from, you know, Brett preaches on Sunday night, but dad still teaches, you know, preaches in the morning, and then slowly dad decided, okay, well, I'll, te- I'll preach at night, but, and you can have the mornings. And uh, so dad still goes to church there, right? So it's kind of Brett's church. You understand what I'm saying? But dad is still there watching, looking around, uh, telling him things he doesn't like. I think recently he got a drum set, and his dad had a, uh, it's a King James only church, with a drum set. What? So that is interesting. I thought, he's, I don't even know what to think. So anyway, uh, that's, but, so, okay, here's what I was going with all that. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's an inheritance, right? It's Brett's church. But dad's still kind of in charge. You understand what I'm saying? It's a fake inheritance. Because <laughs> you can kind of say, well, Brett, it's Brett's church, but you can only say that to be nice. Until dad, you know, passes on, it's, it's not Brett's church. Right? So is this, what, is this what going on when we have the father giving the inheritance to the son? That the son now is... Head of all things, director, governor, sustainer, creator of all things, but the father really is the one that's in charge. Or has the inheritance truly been given to the son, where the son really has charge?
in a real way. Does that make sense? We've got to keep that clear. That's an important thing to understand because what we end up doing... Um, I know I keep using the Superman analogy, but I use it because it's kind of the human go-to when we think of God because it helps us make God more like us so we feel more warm. I think sometimes we're like... Uh, when we, want some, uh, when we want to understand something or feel closer to something, we usually make something more like us. It's why idols are so tempting to people, right? Um, it's why uh, for young people, um, thinking you will find your happiness in a human or in a relationship or something like that, they really think that's going to do it because it's something they know, something they have fantasized about. God seems too out here, and so you get these... You know, pastors that try to make God more like us so the kids will come. They don't assume that it's sin that's doing this. So, I say all that to say, sometimes we do that to God. We think, we think in terms of what a human family would be like, and we say, well, that must be what it's like. But what we see is that real power, real ownership is handed to the Son. As creator, sustainer, governor, and director of the world, of all things. Um, he is, and that other blank there is creator. Now I'm going into all this about Christ. Because I want to make a statement here that I need to, uh, that, I, that I feel I'm trying to prove. Why is it that the author is going into all this? Why is it that similarly, I mean super similarly, Paul went into this in Colossians? Because, your next blank there, it would be blasphemy of the Father... For the Father to make a created thing heir and creator. Because these are God acts that we're talking about here. If Christ was created, if Christ is anything less than God himself, then the Father commits a sin by making something created God-like. Does that make sense? So when we start to mess or fool around with the, God, the God-ness, if you want to put it that way, of the Son, you are saying something about the Father, whether you know it or not. For the Father to appoint anyone else but his Son to be heir of all things, to be the creator of all things, um, he has to be God or the Father sins. He makes something like him. Now why would, why would I say all that? I say that because of your next blank there. God will not share his glory with another, Isaiah 42, 8. He will not share it. Because in sharing it, he lessens himself. 
he goes against his own character. He attempts to cause violence, if I can put it that way, to his own deity. He will not share his glory with another. So how is it possible that all throughout the ministry of Christ, we have Christ talking about Christ being the glory of the Father? Um, you can even, uh, it even says here in verse 3, And he, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of his, the Father's, glory. He is the radiance. What is that talking about? I tried to put it in a way maybe we can understand better. Um, one way is uh, the visible idea that Christ is the uh, is a visible representation of his of his glory. Another way of putting it, for your blank there, Christ is the climax. I'll put it that way of the Father's glory. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, those are both great words to use. Because it gives you that sense of the visual. Um, but it's not just the vis- visual. That's why I want to say climax, because it is the height as well of the glory of the Father. And so for, for God to be clear that he will not share his glory with another then what is happening if Christ isn't just, isn't just the visual idea of the Father's glory, but is the Father's glory in its greatest climactic presence? The Son has to be God. Um, God is not the sum of many parts. Okay? Um, this is something we call in theology uh, God's simplicity. And this is very hard for us to understand because we as humans uh, are a sum of a bunch of parts, right? We have a body, we have a soul. It's all connected, but we can definitely divide them. <laughs> um, we have personalities. We know what it's like to love someone and hate that same person. Did I cut too close there? I was trying to keep it light. Okay. I was like, yes, I know what that's like. Okay. Um, so we understand what it's like to have different parts of our personality. And it, it really does seem like parts because we really do feel different ways about the same person at different times. So it's hard for us to understand a God who is identical to his nature. Um, And that's a hard concept to grasp. When it says God is love, that's real. God doesn't have a part of him that is love. Um, He's identical with love. He's identical with his knowledge. He's identical um, with every attribute that we can conjure up. So he is not, those aren't parts of him, that is him. And so that's kind of a mind-bender there, if we really are understanding what I'm saying. Having that in our minds, we have to remember he is, and this, the next blank there is, identical to his attributes. 
And keeping that in mind, what does it say in verse 3? So he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Um, one thing that, uh, one of the cool things that my job lets me do is think long and hard about things that normally people don't think about. One of those things is, is 2 plus 2 equal 4? Is that true? Or is that um, a fact? So, so a fact is something that is accurate and is consistent. But if it can be falsified, it does no violence to something that really is inerrant and infallible. Okay, I know that's a, that's a lot of stupid things to say. To say this. What we know 2 plus 2 equals 4 is not, it is not a direct, it's not directly from the mind of God. When you are doing mathematics, you are not sharing the mind of God. Okay? God has uh, revealed himself through things. We don't get to bypass those things that he revealed himself through and just go directly to his brain. I can say that in a uh, analogical way. Um, now, this is a big fight in Christianity because a lot of people want to make mathematics a part of God's direct mind. Why don't we want to do that? Do you think? Because there are parts of mathematics which contradict that statement later you made about is it true or not. Okay, that's and therefore, true. Therefore, it would negate God's nature. In, in a lesser value and say that he is not who he seems to be. Okay. In his attributes and his character. Yeah, so if you start finding contradictions in mathematics, then that would be a problem. And they have. There's a guy named Gertrl. Gertrl. It's, uh, it's, I think that's how you say it. Uh, yes. Is it, uh, is it too simplifying? Is that a problem? Too? That's another problem. But let's say for just one moment you're able to share the exact knowledge of God just for a second. What do you become? God. You become God because God is identical with his knowledge. The minute you and God share exact knowledge, uh, then you become what? Because he's identical with his knowledge. And of course it's never going to, you know, we can't possibly, who can know the mind of God, right? That's what it says in Scripture. Right. <laughs> Romans 11.33, right? Who can know the mind of God? Or who can be his counselor? Or his ways are higher than my ways. Yes. That's why, and next week we're going to find this out, this is why there needs to be mediation. There needs to be someone that can communicate. Okay? So... Um, so that's the danger. So now if you say there's someone that is the exact representation of God's nature, what are we saying? Christ. Yeah, you could not say that of a human being. That would be blasphemy. You could not say that of an angel. Because an angel is a created thing. A created thing can never be the exact representation of the Father's nature. Because what would happen? He would become the Father. Right? So there has to be God. 
who can exactly represent the nature of God. This is through the Son. And so here we have, God is not the sum of, his, of many parts. He is identical to his attributes. Christ is the exact representation of the Father's nature. So in that case, they would have to share deity for that to be true. And then what we find out is they don't share it, they are it. (laughs) All right. So what? Who cares? Why are we talking about all this stuff? Couldn't I got through my Sunday just loving Jesus, right? Why do I have to know more about these complicated things? Um, Because when you look closely at these complicated things, you find that these complicated things help you understand the height and breadth of the lengths at which God went for you. The depths he had to bow for you. And the humiliation he went through for you. We as parents get upset when we have dedicated years upon years of sacrifice, instruction, money, food, shelter for our children. And they are ungrateful. Right? Um, They believe that they're owed all these things and uh, they really believe there's some kind of independence existing inside them somewhere. <laughs> and so you think, man, what's wrong with those kids? And we come to church and we're like, oh, I don't want to learn all this stuff about the Lord. <laughs> we would never say that on the quiz. But it becomes, oh, this is so, it's too early in the morning to think about all this. But we're going over, right? We're going over all the things the work, as far as our tiny brains can get to, that was done for you. At a moment, and if you have kids, you get this, at a moment at which you did not deserve it. And the only thing that makes you deserving of anything is the presence of someone else in you. If I can put it this way, your presence in them. Um, so before God spoke, uh, before everything, God spoke through created means. And speaking that way through created means, through prophets, through visions, through all those different things, was God's great graciousness to man. But now, God speaks... In the uncreated God's Son, who reflects the Father perfectly, so that we may know, and this is the mind-boggling part, why is a Son um, coming to us, expressing the exact representation of the Father for us, so that we can know the Father? Right? Through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And Jesus brings us up over and over in, in John 14, 9. If you, know, if you know me, you know the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What does that mean? If you have seen me, you understand what he's saying? If your eyes, if the photons from the sun bounce off my flesh and enter into your eyes, and you see me, you've seen the Father. Can you imagine a human being saying something like that? An angel? Yeah, no one would be able to say that. Only the Son. Only God on earth could say something like that. And to have the humiliation to be able to say, or the humility, if I can put it that way, to say, I am here. Not just to save you, but that you may know my Father. For I, the Son, am the glory of the Father. The wisdom of Now, all this sounds very strange, unless you understand that we live in a covenantal reality. I was talking to a man a few days ago who is not a Reformed believer. Uh, He is um, what you would call a classical dispensationalist, I think. Um, I mean, he's a believer, of course. But so much of the Bible is so strange to him. He's just like, I don't know. As we were talking about Adam, I was talking about how, you know, Romans 5 is very clear. Adam's sin was imputed to us. He represented us to the point where his sin was imputed to us, so it is real. It's not a fake imputation. It's real. You really are as guilty as he is. It is as if you were there taking the fruit out of Eve's hand and taking a bite. As if you were there not protecting your wife and letting her take that bite, even though you are standing there knowing you are the head in that relationship and in that covenant that you made with God. And so is the condition of all of us. And he's like, I just don't understand it. And that's maybe why he loves that song. You know, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it for me. And that's great. And that's what he needs. But what's even more interesting is if you understand God made a covenantal world. It is not a philosophical world. So in a covenantal reality, Christ represents the Father as fully God and represents man, and this is the humiliating part, As fully man. Christ representing the Father's the Father is Christ's natural state. This and we can put this in a creaturely way, this covenantal representation. This way that the the Son represents the Father, the Father um, and the and the Spirit represents them in this kind of representative way that they represent each other as one single God. Three persons is Christ's natural state. Christ representing man is Christ's added state. He added 
something to himself. Taking on flesh was taking on a representation, and that representation was you, so that he might represent us perfectly on the cross, that he might be able to expiate our sins. Taking away your sins was not a uh, snap of the finger, and it wasn't something that could have been done in another way, because God created a covenantal world, because he wanted a world that would, in a creaturely way, represent the Creator. And the Creator, in his natural state, represents the persons of the, of, the, of the Godhead represent each other. And so his fingerprint is on his creation, which is a representative creation. So this becoming fully man and remaining fully God was for you. And it is... Um, if you missed... Um, Andrew's uh, Andrew's sermon last week uh, download that because it really uh, it convicts me Um, it's worth hearing again in fact because we often in our ignorance right because there is some ignorance in our ignorance we become ungrateful like brats Um, even teenagers get the logical concept I don't own anything and mommy and daddy are paying for everything but there does seem to be still that pull that ignorance of I'm my own person type idea, right? and we do that on a quiz we know yep, God's in charge of all things He's done all these things for me, and we can check off all those things, but our gratitude is junk. And that's convicted me as I look at these deep things of the Lord that are deep things. I mean, a lot of this is seminary-level stuff. But why should we let the seminarians get all the joy, right? They're so busy taking pictures of their Hebrew books so everyone understands how smart they are. Maybe we can find out some stuff and enjoy it as well. All right. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get to, get to church. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God so great that even understanding pieces of, of what you are and how you've revealed yourself in your word still take our minds to the brink And it's hard to understand everything there is to know, even of what you've just revealed, let alone who you are. Lord, we thank you for that, because it brings us great security, knowing that you are a great God, an almighty God. One that we don't have to invent things to justify you, because we are the ones that are unjustified. And we thank you for the great work of your Son that we might be justified through him. We pray for your blessing over today's service, that the Spirit will humble our hearts.
through the work of your word. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.